The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. The word of God speaks to us. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sinners will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemes they utter, and whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit, never has unforgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Emily. Good to be with you guys on this holiday. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I get the privilege and honor of serving as one of the pastors here at Frontline. I missed you guys last week. I was preaching at our downtown congregation, which is like Edmond, but not quite as cool. Um, don't tell them that, though. They might get offended. But um, it's good to be back home with you guys. Um, it's, we would be remiss to not, to not mark the reality of, of this holiday and what it means for Jesus' church that there are people worshiping in secret right now around, around the world who don't have the privilege and freedom to worship in the open like this. It's a great privilege uh, that we have come to a country where we can worship Jesus freely without consequence or, or punishment. There are pastors today who, instead of preaching the word to their people, like I get the privilege of doing, are in jail for their faithfulness in preaching God's word. So let's remember our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted, who are in prison, um, I, think, I think the estimates are that uh, every two hours, somebody is martyred for their faith in Jesus around the world. So here, Independence Day means something very significant for Jesus' church. We're blessed, and we have many good gifts that are not to be taken for granted. Pray with me over this text and, and pray for me. Lord, thank you. Lord, we don't deserve to be here today. We don't deserve these freedoms and this comfort. Uh, and so we say thank you. And we ask that you would help us to continue to do with all your good gifts what you've intended we do, which is to grow in our gratitude towards the giver, to grow in our appreciation of your kindness and your generosity to us. And Lord, we do pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who do not enjoy these freedoms, who are in prison for their faith and the message. Bless them, Lord. Be with them today, we pray. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, we pray with the psalmist. Meet us in this text. Feed us with spiritual food. Send us from this place with fresh hope, fresh joy, fresh encouragement in our hearts. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
How are things going over there at Calvary Chapel High School? My grandfather's voice was warm, but we both knew he was baiting me. I'm 41 now, but way back then I was only 17 and I had just moved across the country, enrolled in a two-year Bible college prior to starting my undergrad because I had just experienced a significant spiritual renewal at the age of 16 and unsurprisingly found in myself a new hunger to learn and understand God's word. And when my grandfather and I would talk on the phone, he would always pretend that he'd forgotten the name of the school. He'd always refer to it as Calvary Chapel High School to try to get under my skin and to not so subtly communicate his disappointment that I was doing something that wouldn't help me make a lot of money. (laughs) Grandpa, I just moved across the country. You know this isn't a high school. I'm in Bible college and you're still working full-time in real estate. So I'm not buying this fake senility bit. But the best thing about my grandpa is that he would always double down. He'd keep needling me. His voice full of false innocence. Oh, college, really? Do they have architecture there or pre-med? No, Grandpa, that's a Bible college. You already know that. I loved my grandfather dearly. I miss him a great deal. The good news is that he loved Jesus. He was a man of character. But his voice in my life would sometimes lobby for money over meaning, hoping that I'd get the big break that he longed for and never quite got. Voices. We're all surrounded by them. Sometimes we're even haunted by them. Counselor and Professor David Powelson used to like to describe our world as being like a huge supermarket of options in which we reveal our hearts by what voices we listen to. We view life through what we want and fear and believe. Everything's a choice. God's created for us a world with billions of options to notice and want and respond to. Powelson used to say that the question that's most significant for us is the question of the heart. What do you hear? What do you notice? What gets your attention? What voices are you listening to? We see here in Mark 3, 20 through 35, how Jesus responds to the voices, voices of the crowd, the cultural elite of his day, even those closest to him. And here's what I believe this text is inviting us to hear today. Because Jesus is stronger than Satan and all of our self-destructiveness combined, we need to listen to him. We need to listen to him more than the crowd of voices in our heads, more than the cultural elite of our day, more even than those closest to us, our very own families. So first, consider with me what it looks like to listen to Jesus more than the crowd of voices in our heads. Notice there in verse 20, they couldn't even eat. This was a common occurrence in the three short, intense years of Jesus' public ministry. Why couldn't they eat? Because of the crowd. It says similarly in Mark 6, 31, and he said to his disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Why? For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. The crowd. The crowd plays a lead role in the gospels. The crowd's always showing up hungry in every sense imaginable. They need food, they need healing. They're hoping to hear something that sounds like good news. They come broken and desperate and confused, anxious, hopeful. I don't know about you, but it occurred to me this week that there's actually a constant crowd of needy voices that I'm carrying around right here in my own head. A crowd of voices telling me that I'm too much for Jesus, therefore certainly too much for you. Voices telling me that I have too many needs, too many hurts and hangups, too many failures and places of impossibility in me things that nobody else has been able to cure or heal. 
I'm too hungry. I'm too high maintenance. I'm too much of an annoyance. I'm too much. Now multiply me by a thousand. Take away our food. Turn the heat up to 100 degrees and throw us all at Jesus, the crowd. How would you guess that Jesus responds to the crowd? Mark 6, he went ashore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Matthew 15, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. They've been with me three days now. They don't have anything to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Luke 9, when the apostles returned from the ministry trip that Jesus had sent them on, they reported excitedly to Jesus all that they had done. And then he took them with him and they withdrew themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. How does he respond? He welcomed them. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. He healed those who needed healing. How does Jesus respond to the crowd? Every time he graciously receives them. He tells them good news. He heals them. He feeds them. The crowd never drowns him or distracts him or drains him dry. Jesus is always enough. So we need today to be confronted again with the overwhelming mountain of evidence for the consistent compassion of Jesus. We need to come to the communion tables today expecting to be fed by Jesus. We need to come for prayer today expecting that power will come out from Jesus that's able to heal all of the impossible places in us. You've probably noticed this, that often when we're at our lowest, the world starts to just look like two big buckets. People who care but can't help and people who can help but don't care. And yet we've come to Jesus, who cares deeply and can heal completely. He's both patient and powerful. He offers both compassion and cure. So if you came through those doors today feeling like you're too much, it's time to let Jesus' voice ring out louder than the crowd of voices in your head it's time for you to hear the good news. You're not too much for Jesus. He's enough. We're tempted to listen to the voices in our head more than the voice of Jesus. What other voices are we tempted to listen to more than the voice of Jesus? Well, certainly the voices of those closest to us. I mean, after all, how did so many of those voices in our head get there in the first place? I remember a novelist joking that the reason he doesn't call his parents more is because he doesn't have to he already hears their voices in his head constantly. <laughs> Jesus is stronger than Satan. All of our self-destructiveness combined, so we need to listen to him. We need to listen to him more even than those closest to us. Notice in verse 21, the voice of Jesus' family. His family says, he's out of his mind. And in an Eastern honor-shame culture, the voice of Jesus' family would have been really loud in his ear, not a voice he could have turned the volume down on easily. Hey, Jesus, you're embarrassing yourself. Worse, you're embarrassing us. Our family has a reputation in this community. People are starting to talk. You need to come home. John 7 tells us, for not even his brothers believed in him. 
Notice that they think he's crazy enough. The text says they're planning to, quote, seize him. And we don't know if that means they're planning to drag him off like somebody being arrested or simply gently steer him away like somebody wandering in a daze. But either way, they view him as needing to be taken physically in hand. This is a full-scale family intervention on behalf of Jesus. So when your conscience is leading you to make big sacrifices in the present for the sake of the deeper and more lasting joy that you found in Jesus, be careful. When your friends and family start calling you crazy because they're working from the world's math and your actions aren't adding up, be careful. Don't ever let anybody get in the way of your lasting reward. Don't ever let your family tempt you to doubt the divine math. Listen to how Jesus describes this divine math for his disciples later in Mark 10. Then Peter spoke up. It's always Peter speaking up, right? Uh, We've left everything to follow you, Jesus. (laughs) Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, nobody who's left home, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive notice a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Don't doubt the divine math. Don't ever let your family tempt you to doubt the divine math. My other grandfather was joyfully found by Jesus very late in life, just before he passed. But when my mother became a Christian as a young adult and went to eagerly share this news with him, At that time, he was merely dutifully attending mass because that's just what good New York Roman Catholic Italians did at the time. And he very revealingly and memorably replied to my mom, Carol, I don't need Jesus. Jesus is for losers. When everybody around you is obsessing over their rung on the ladder, Jesus comes along and lays all the ladders down. When everyone around you is obsessed with climbing higher, Jesus invites you on a journey where forward progress only comes by way of descent. How does Jesus answer this challenge from his family? Look again at verses 32 through 34. It says, a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here. Here are my mother and my brothers. Jesus is saying something earth-shattering and countercultural to his listeners, and it's still true today, 2,000 years later, and it's simply this. Spiritual family trumps biological family. Spiritual family trumps biological family. That's good news. It's good news for those of you who grew up with rigid rules under the thumb of shame and anger. It's Good news for those of you who can never seem to please your parents no matter what you do. It's good news for those of you who have suffered violation or violence. If you're trusting in Jesus, Jesus is saying, welcome to your newer, truer family. Welcome to the family of God. Don't ever doubt the divine math. Spiritual family trumps biological family. More than the voice of Jesus, we're tempted to listen to the voices in our head, the voices of those closest to us. What's another voice we're tempted to listen to more than the voice of Jesus? The voice of the cultural elite of our day. 
Because we live in a day and an age where the voices of so many so-called public intellectuals are being weaponized by technology. Not all, but many of the loudest voices trying to sell you on their version of reality, their version of the good life, predictably tend to find the claims and teaching of Jesus laughable, anti-intellectual, out of date. They're gonna tempt you to think twice before believing or saying or doing anything that could get you labeled as out of touch or like Jesus, even out of your mind. As a result, we look around and we see so many people who are buckling under the pressure, bailing on the authority of the teaching of Jesus. But here in our text, Jesus is reminding us that he's stronger than Satan. He's stronger than all of our self-destructiveness combined. So we need to listen to him. And we need to listen to him more even than the cultural elite. Verse 21, his family members were saying, now verse 22, the scribes were saying. And what the scribes were saying, verse 22, is he's possessed. (laughs) His family thinks he's out of control mentally. And now the most respected intellectual and ethical thinkers in the whole country are accusing him of being controlled demonically. The irony's thick. Mark doesn't want us to miss the fact that just a few verses prior in verse 11, it says that in contrast to the crowd's confusion or his family's well-meaning condescension or the religious elite's condemnation, verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, They fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. In our story, everybody is so out to lunch on who Jesus is that the demons are the only ones who get a passing grade. Mark's delicately reminding us that left to ourselves, we're slower on the spiritual uptake than the demons. That's how badly we need God to break through our spiritual dullness and graciously reveal himself to us. But the good news is that we're Saved by grace, not by our good sense or our superior intellect or even our spiritual work ethic. Nobody's a Christian because they're smarter. If anybody's a Christian, it's only and always because God has gone first and broken into their blindness and opened their eyes to his beauty as revealed in the face of Jesus. In John eleven forty eight, 48, we get to listen in on the conspiracy of this cultural elite saying to each other, if we let him go on like this, everybody's gonna believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. These religious leaders may be blind to the beauty of Jesus, but they're not stupid. Rome's left them a small measure of governing power as long as the Jewish people behave themselves. But if Jesus does stir up a revolt against Rome, as they're wrongly afraid he's gonna do, they're gonna lose their power and privileges and the whole nation might even be punished as a result. On the other hand, they do decide to deliberately politicize Jesus' message and mission in ways that they know are untrue, precisely in order to stir up fear and reaction as a means of trying to get rid of Jesus. They are concerned for their people to a degree. They're not as bad as they could be, but they're also jealous to keep their own power. This is relevant for us because just like these religious leaders, it's fashionable today to try to figure out how to acknowledge the significance of Jesus without having to turn over any control to Jesus. 
an endless stream of authors and thinkers down through the ages have thrown mountains of doubt on Jesus with little to no doubt left over for themselves. But these religious leaders should have known themselves better than that. We should know ourselves better than that. We're never less reasonable than when somebody's trying to tell us no. <laughs> That's true in the supermarket aisle at age six, and it's true in the back alleys of the internet at age 66. For too many of us, God can be God as long as he doesn't get in our way, as long as he behaves himself. So if you're here today and you're unsure of what you believe, maybe you've just started considering the claims of Jesus, welcome. Take all the time you need. We're honored that you're here. We're not going to rush you. But I do want to offer you a challenge. As you process and wrestle, whatever you do, make sure that you don't just end up like so many with a vague spirituality that's really not much more than your way plus goosebumps. Some kind of celestial shiver down your spine that's always conveniently rubber stamping what you already wanted to do anyway. Aldous Huxley, a British philosopher most well known for writing Brave New World, freely admits as much in his book Ends and Means. And he writes like a philosopher, so bear with him. Notice what he says. I had motives, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meeting and consequently assumed it had none. And I was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption because the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world isn't concerned exclusively with some esoteric philosophical problem. He's also concerned to prove there's no valid reason, notice, why he personally shouldn't do as he wants to do. <laughs> we objected to Christian morality. Why? Because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There was one admirably simple method of justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We deny the world had any meaning whatever. You see, sometimes if we're honest, we're really working backwards from how we want to live to what we're willing to admit is true. Doesn't mean that we have no intellectual integrity at all, but it would be intellectually dishonest of us to refuse to acknowledge the weight of what we would have to give up in order to submit to the authority of Jesus, to turn control of our lives over to Jesus. But the good news is that we've come to someone who's kind enough to patiently unweave our pretensions and our intellectual inconsistency. We've come to somebody who's kind enough to go in after us. Notice verse 23, and he called them to him and said to them in parables. He's appealing to their reason. He's working skillfully as he so often does to awaken their imagination to his goodness. He doesn't dismiss them or name call them or shame them. He reasons with them. He works hard to enter the side door with them. He invites them to doubt their doubts so that he might open their minds to lasting joy. And he does this because he knows that being willing to begin doubting our doubts is the beginning of our ability to trust God. The ability to doubt ourselves is a gift. It's a great gift because it's the very thing that cracks the door just wide enough for faith to slip in. You can't start to trust God until you're willing to doubt yourself. Notice again Jesus' words in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Whatever blasphemies they utter. 
This is profoundly good news for us. How many men and women have said to their spouses, I could overlook that, and I could overlook that, but I'll never forgive you for this. And here comes Jesus, and he puts no limits or conditions on his forgiveness. He takes nothing off the table, even your slander against him. He doesn't hedge. There's no fine print in the forgiveness of Jesus. All sins, whatever blasphemies. Now notice they've leveled two different accusations at Jesus. In verses 23 through 26, Jesus easily dismisses the first accusation, that he does his healing ministry in some kind of spiritual conspiracy with Satan and his demons. Now starting in verse 27, he answers the second and the more serious charge, that he himself is demonized. And he answers them, notice, with a metaphor about breaking and entering. What's his point? And why would he refer to Satan as a strong man? Well, first, the religious elite are the ones who are name-calling. And since they've dragged out this exotic word, Beelzebul, which means something like prince of demons or head of the house of demons, Jesus is saying, you don't know me. Actually, my whole purpose in coming is to break into that house and tie up the master. Second, there's a clue in John the Baptist's introduction of Jesus earlier in Mark 1, verse 7, where John says, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. It's the same word translated here as strong. Jesus is saying, if Satan's a strong man, I'm the stronger man. <laughs> I don't come with dark power borrowed from evil spirits, as you're accusing me. I actually come brimming and overflowing with the power of the very Holy Spirit of God. This is why Paul can say in Colossians 2, that God disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities in the universe and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. That's why John can say in 1 John 3, hey, the whole reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What Jesus is trying to help us realize is it's not a question of whether or not we've done anything that we should be ashamed of. We all have. It's not a question of whether or not we've ever been bound by any evil power. We all have been. The question, the only question that matters, is whether or not anybody's actually coming for us who's strong enough to untie us and kind enough to cover our shame. And Jesus is saying, even though you don't understand why I'm here, I've actually come precisely to break the devil's teeth in his mouth, and there's absolutely nothing the devil can do to stop me. Now consider the word translated in our passage as blasphemy. Blasphemy. We tend to think, in our culture, understandably, of a red-faced priest in a movie wagging his finger at somebody, maybe overreacting to their disrespectful comment looking like he's expecting lightning to strike at any moment as though God were really thin-skinned. The English word blasphemy can unintentionally smuggle in this idea that God's not just high and holy, but he's also insecure, easily offended. Since blasphemy carries the idea of saying something offensive about God, we naturally assume that God's easily offended. Hey, don't offend God or he'll get you. But the word translated here, blaspheme, is the same word translated as slander in many other places in the Bible that describe how we should talk about each other, how we should not talk about each other. Slander is bringing false charges against somebody, lying about their character and their conduct. So it's relevant here because 
when the embodiment of goodness and beauty himself gets in the way of what we really want, we're tempted to call good evil. We're tempted to slander, to blaspheme. Blasphemy sounds spiritually ethereal and dramatic. It's actually straightforward. Blasphemy is when we call good evil. And the good news is that verse 28 tells us that God is such a person that he forgives it wholeheartedly. But then, what does Jesus mean when he says in verse 29 that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin? This is far and away one of the most frequently asked questions about the entire Bible. Since Jesus says it's unforgivable, it's understandable that people are concerned to know what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin is so they can figure out whether or not they've committed it. Pastor and theologian Sam Storms gives six concise reasons why anybody who's worried about whether they've committed the unpardonable sin hasn't. First, what it's not. It's not some accidental, one-off, or even occasional sin. By the very definition of the extreme hard-heartedness required to commit it in the first place, if you're even remotely worried that you've committed it, you haven't. Those who have committed it couldn't care less. That's the whole point. Two, contrary to persistent popular opinion, the unpardonable sin is not murder or adultery or suicide. There's not a scrap of evidence for this anywhere in all of Scripture. Three, Jesus says they're sinning against, notice, the Holy Spirit and not against him. Why? Well, because Jesus does all of his healings and his miracles as a man fully dependent on and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says plainly in Matthew 12, 28, it's by the Spirit of God that he casts out demons. This is why Jesus says they're sinning against the Holy Spirit. For, as we've already seen, the religious leaders attributing the good things Jesus has done to the work of the devil isn't due to ignorance or confusion on their part. These men are coldly and deliberately slandering Jesus, and they don't care if they have to kick sand on the Holy Spirit to do it. Five, their blasphemy isn't new or isolated. It's actually the culmination of a lifelong rebellion against God's heart and God's truth. Their hearts are hard because they've been persistently hardening them over the course of their entire lives. Six, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, therefore, is not just unbelief, the sort of common, everyday unbelief or doubt that some of you walked into this room with here today. Jesus is talking about open defiance of what you know beyond any shadow of a doubt to be true. This sin isn't unforgivable because God's forgiveness is too weak to cover it. It's unforgivable because it hates and rejects God's forgiveness at every opportunity. If you keep throwing dirt on the origin of all beauty, eventually all you're gonna see is mud. Jesus is trying to help these men understand that tearing him down requires doing a kind of savagery to your own soul. But any sin you repent of, God will forgive. And any sin you repent of is not the unpardonable sin. Again, that's why those who are most worried that they've committed the unpardonable sin haven't. This is a sin for which there's no concern, no conviction, no anxiety, and thus no repentance. It's a sin that's so hard-hearted and willful and persistent and defiant that the one committing it couldn't care less that they're committing it. In rereading Mark's gospel, I was struck by how 
Mark circles back and picks up this language of blasphemy again at the conclusion of his gospel to make sure that we don't miss the incredible irony of the accusations of these men against Jesus. And I couldn't help but think that the angels looking down on this, the most unjust trial in human history, must have been barely able to contain themselves at the cosmic slander, the profound mockery of justice that they observed. Look at Mark 14. Now the chief priests and the whole council were, notice, seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't even agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, "Uh, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this nonsense, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. No one has ever been slandered more who deserves slander less than Jesus. But the good news for us is that Jesus is a greater savior than any of us here today are slanderers. This means that Jesus is more persistent than your darkest shame. He's more patient than your worst decisions. He's smarter than your worst enemy. And he's stronger than your deepest addiction. Especially if you haven't been lately, that means it's time for you to start talking to Jesus. And when you talk to him, talk to him like this. Talk to him like somebody who won't accept you any other way but empty-handed. Talk to him like somebody you can't bribe. Talk to him like somebody who's never left instead of somebody you gotta beg for another chance. Talk to him like somebody who's never regretted choosing you instead of someone you gotta sell on how you can still turn it around. Talk to him like somebody who's already decided to give you everything you'll ever need. Talk to him like somebody who knows you better than you know yourself and yet in his kindness is not ashamed of you. Talk to him with me right now. Jesus, thank you for your grace. You know us better than we know ourselves and yet in the mystery of your kindness, you love us. We say thank you. Thank you for looking hard at all the ugly things inside us and not going away. Thank you for bringing to us fresh grace to cover all of our shame.
We're humbled, we're undone in the presence of your kindness. Meet us now in the communion table, we pray. Amen.